Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Jody Angel, Skip Horick, Christian Kiefer, Vikman Nguyen, and Luis Urea. You will now hear Christian Kiefer provide introductions. Thanks for coming. The dangerous joy of riding outside your ethnicity, gender, orientation, age, etc. I think there's a longer -er title than that. Thanks for coming. This is the point at AWP where I've been screaming at people at bars all night and my voice is shut and I'm hungover and I have a headache. And I don't even drink alcohol, so I have a headache from Diet Coke, which is the worst. My name is Christian Kiefer. I'm a novelist a straight, white, cisgendered male novelist who writes about straight, white, cisgendered male things. I wanted to put together a panel because of a little story I'm going to tell you. And the story is that um, maybe three years ago I met a young African-American novelist, um, and we sort of hit it off. And maybe a year later he emailed me and he said, Hey, Christian, I'm involved in this uh, internet startup. It's a magazine focused on African-American culture. We wondered if you would write us a piece of short fiction. And all the characters should be black. And it should have something to do with space, because my first novel was about an astronaut. And I wrote him back, and I said, Keenan, you, you remember I'm white, right? And he said, yeah, we don't care about that. We just want good fiction. And I said, man... I don't know if I'm willing to do that. Like, I don't, I don't really do that. And, and, I, and I realized in that moment that I was really sensitive about crossing that line and, and the presumptuousness of crossing that line. And he said, um, we'll pay you $1,000. And I said, I'll, I'll do it, <laughs> you know. But I really struggled with it in my head for a long time. And then when I finally sat down to write it, it was a wonderful experience for me, and, and uh, I got a good story out of it and never got paid, so maybe I only thought it was a good story, oh. <laughs> actually. And um, it just really put me in mind of, of this issue, and this issue, as you know from Twitter and Facebook and LitHub and everywhere else, this is a really hot issue right now. Who gets to cross those lines, and who is permitted to cross those lines, and who gives us permission to cross those lines? You know, off the top of my head, a list I was thinking about yesterday, Gustave Flaubert's Madame Bovary, Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, Kazu Ishiguro's Remains of the Day, Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth, T.C. Boyle, Tortilla Curtain, Arthur Golding's Memoirs of a Geisha. I know how you hate that book. I did. Adam Johnson, Orphan Master's Son, and Bill Chang's Southern Cross the Dog. You know, these are all writers who cross... To, to various degrees outside of their normal box. This is a really full panel. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of freaked out a little bit. <laughs> so what I thought we would do, um, I am a big fan of the audience part of the panels. So I'm going to introduce our panelists. I'm going to ask them to talk briefly about their relationship to their own box, their own ethnic, <laughs> gender, orientation. And then we're hopefully going to open it right up to audience questions, and we can have a discussion that way. On my far left, Skip Horak is the author of the novel The Other Joseph and the story collection The Southern Cross. In the context of this panel discussion, I was particularly interested in Skip's second novel, The Eden Hunter, 
the story of an escaped African pygmy slave. And as you can tell, he's no pygmy. He's very tall. Skip's work has appeared in Oxford American. That was a terrible joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> Skip's work has appeared in Oxford American, Epic, The Southern Review, Narrative Magazine, and elsewhere. He is a former Jones lecturer at Stanford University, where he was also a Wallace Stegner Fellow, native of Louisiana. Horak is an assistant professor at Florida State. Bik Min Nguyen, uh, we can call her Beth, is the author of three books, all with Viking Penguin. Her novel, Short Girls, was an American Book Award winner in fiction and a Library Journal Best Book of the Year. Stealing Buddha's Dinner, a memoir, received the Penn Gerard Award from the Penn American Center and was the Chicago Tribune Best Book of the Year. Beth's work has also appeared in publications including the New York Times and the Found Magazine Anthology. Her most recent novel is Pioneer Girl, the story of a Vietnamese-American academic obsessed with the little house on the prairie books of Laura Ingalls Wilder, <laughs> which is great. Both those books, really great. On my right, Jody Angel's first collection of short stories, History of Vegas, was published in 2005 and was named as a San Francisco Chronicle Best Book of the Year, as well as a Los Angeles Times Book Review Discovery. Her second, You Only Get Letters from Jail, was published by Tin House in 2013. Of that book, the New York Times wrote that, quote, according to her bio in the back of the book, Miss Angel grew up in a family of girls in this accomplished moving collection of stories about boys. She proves the uselessness of the old dictum that you should write what you know. And then down at the end, this miscreant. <laughs> the man NPR called a literary badass and a master storyteller with a rock and roll heart. How much did you pay them for that stuff right there? <laughs> Luis Alberto Urea is the author of 16 books of poetry, nonfiction, and fiction, and has used his dual culture life experiences to explore greater themes of love, loss, and triumph. A 2005 Pulitzer Prize finalist for nonfiction and a member of the Latino Literature Hall of Fame, Luis was born in Tijuana to a Mexican father and American mother and is most recognized as a border writer, though he says, I am more interested in bridges, not borders. He is author of The Water Museum, a current finalist for the 2015 Penn Faulkner Award, Devil's Highway, Into the Beautiful North, and The Hummingbird's Daughter, a novel about the life of his great-aunt Teresita, a half-Indian mystic, spiritual figure, and healer. Luis lives with his family in Naperville, Illinois, where he is a distinguished professor of creative writing at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Woo! That's the panel I made, bitches. What's up? <laughs> <laughs> God damn. I feel like I should just drop the mic like Kanye and walk off right now. Skip, do you want to lead the charge and uh, let yeah, us know I'll a little love, bit about where, where, where you're coming from? You. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, thank you all so much for coming. I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice as well. Like everyone up here, I'm sure, and I suppose most of uh, you writers in the audience, my fiction contains many, many characters who are quite different from me um, in any number of ways, uh, race, gender, age, on and on. Um, but I think one of the reasons, or, uh, I guess you admitted as much, perhaps the main reason um, they were kind enough to ask me to be here on this panel is because my first novel is uh, written from the point of view of an indigenous pygmy tribesman uh, who's kidnapped from Central Africa in the 1800s, then brought to America as a slave. And I suppose that's a pretty extreme example of this uh, writing outside the confines of your own uh, experience discussion. And so, 
You know, a novel written by a white American from the perspective of an African man who lived 200 years ago, why did I think that was a good idea, or okay even? Well, I suppose really the main, one of the main points I'd like to make this afternoon is that as, as fiction writers, pretty much by definition, uh, we have to write from the perspective of folks who are not simply fictionalized versions of ourselves, you know, gender, race, age, everything. So just as a, as a practical matter, um, if writers were never allowed to step outside of themselves, so to speak, then I think we would you know, very quickly run out of things um, to write about. But let's put practicalities aside for a moment and just talk about the ethics of the matter, because I think that's probably the bigger question. And you know, ethics is, is definitely not something I can claim to be an expert in, but I try. And I will say, you know, in my opinion, you know, the desire and the, the attempt, the struggle to think and perceive as others, however different um, than myself might, when done responsibly and empathetically and not you know, cynically or sloppily or exploitatively, you know, how can that be anything less than an act of respect, right? Uh, you know, something worth celebrating. And to do that effectively requires empathy. And one thing I love about writing and teaching writing, for that matter, is that it, it develops empathy, and as does reading widely, um, for that matter. So I think you know, one of the things that first drew me to writing fiction, um, even as a little kid, was that it gave me the opportunity, you know, the gift really, to, to imagine what other people's lives were like and to put myself in other people's shoes. And again, I feel as if you know, that's an act of respect. So to say I'm really interested in how you experience the world and, and I'm going to try and understand how you see life. There's this great quote I came upon from the, the writer uh, Rebecca West, and she said that um, feminism is the, is the radical notion that, that women are people. <laughs> and, you know, to sort of extend that, you know, yes, you know, people are people. And I totally agree with the sentiment that at the end of the day, our, you know, similarities are greater than our differences as members of sort of this human family. And as a writer, if I allow the fact that someone is distinct from me in certain ways or certain aspects to prevent me from trying to understand what their life is like on the page, um, I'm sort of rejecting them as a human being in a way, you know. And, and that, of course, I think <laughs> seems wrong, or it should seem sound wrong, Right. So all of that's, you know, pretty to say, the sort of humanist notion, but, you know, that our similarities are greater than our differences. But there are indeed differences that must be represented and appreciated. And, you know, an act of respect or not, um, the sort of road to exploitation and appropriation is often paved with good intentions, and we've seen examples of this. But it's the duty of this writer, I think, to do, you know, his or her level best to make sure that those, dis those differences are valued and reflected. And, and when writers fall short of that, then I think readers have every right to call them on it. Um, basically, it's only an act of respect if in creating those fictional characters, you give them the respect they deserve. So, sure, there will be commonalities between uh, you and all of your characters. As people, most of us have the same base level hopes, fears, and dreams. But... The other part of the equation is acknowledging and understanding how that character is different from you as the writer and, and honoring that on the page as well. And it's that second part that makes it so important for writers, I think, to be students of life and of people and not to insulate themselves and all of this and from the world in sort of all of its wonderful diversity or their work for that matter, right? I'm going to cheat a little bit because Claudia Rankin gave this very thoughtful keynote speech and I thought she said some things that were really sort of on point in this and so... I guess, uh, to sort of bolster my own talk by just using her 
brilliant words, but also to make sure that maybe they're heard a second time. Um, there were some things I wanted to share. So, in the internet this morning, read it if you have. In New York Magazine, or maybe it was Vulture.com or something, had a, an article about her speech. And there's a passage from that article and from Rankin's speech that seems particularly ap- applicable. So, the article reads, they're talking about the talk on um, Thursday night, sort of like a Russian nesting doll. Um, Rankin went on to offer an example of what, quote, some of you white people could do to at least make race acknowledgement part of their worldview. She read a poem by the white poet Jonah Weiner, Weiner, Cloak, about a childhood summer day, and then his own lengthy revision inspired by Rankin, which reinstated a black friend he had at the time as well as the backdrop of school busing in late 70s Trenton, New Jersey, thus turning an amorphous elegy into a many-layered political critique. Then, unexpectedly, Rankin turned the revisionist impulse on herself, noting, quote, I thought about who wasn't represented in my own work, who I had little contact with in my own life. The answer was poor, working-class white people, unquote. So she wrote a poem about it called Sound and Fury, a portrait of the Trump voter, as a cast-aside worker, which she read to the silent audience in its entirety. Included was a litany of economic woes, foreclosure, banished pensions, school systems in disrepair, free trade, before the poem concludes with this line. Quote, in twilight, this right to righteous rage doubles down to the supremacy of white in this way, end quote. Rankin then ended the talk by revising herself again, changing the last three words. Now they read, in our way. Because racism is everyone's problem. Um, I'll end by saying that I think in many ways writing is a conversation with the world. And you know, to get, conduct that conversation in an environment that lacks diversity um, falsifies the conversation, I think. And so I'd say not only should writers be allowed to write outside of themselves, um, they should be doing it, um, period. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Uh, it's an honor to be on this panel, and thank you, Christian, for putting this together. Also, thank you for putting etc. in the title, because <laughs> you just couldn't be bothered to finish <laughs> the thought. <laughs> so part of this uh, panel description includes the phrase, the confines of our own experience. And I've been thinking about that phrase a lot, and thinking about how those confines begin in childhood, which is a space uh, where we shape the rest of our lives without realizing it. I grew up reading books by and about white people. I think most of us did. I'd be shocked if most of us did not. I read Laura Ingalls Wilder, Louisa May Alcott, Edith Wharton, Thomas Hardy, Jane Austen, Will Cather, John John Steinbeck, the list goes on. I spent my childhood days lost in their books lost in the lives and experiences of people who are nothing like me. Me, the child of refugees from Vietnam, growing up in the Midwest in the deep 1980s, everywhere I looked, there was whiteness. The characters in books, the actors on TV, the kids at my school, the very landscape of winter. When I started writing secretly in school, my characters were always white. They lived in England, in New York, the Great Plains, usually in stately homes that in no way resembled my own. It never once occurred to me to write my own family's experience. It's not just that I didn't think it was possible. The idea didn't even enter my mind. 
because every book I saw, every protagonist I knew was white. That's what I read, so that's what I wrote. My first year of college, I read The Woman Warrior by Maxine Hong Kingston for a class. It was the first time I'd ever read a book by an Asian-American Asian American woman about her own experiences. It's fair to say that this changed my life. Then later that year, I took a fiction workshop. The first short story I turned in was about my white boyfriend's mother and how she had left her husband for a man she had met at a horse farm. In other words, there were no Asian people in this story. (laughs) My professor, in her critique, uh, told me that the story lacked authenticity. She said, I'm not saying you have to write what you know, but in this case, you maybe should write what you know. <laughs> and at first that confused me because I thought that I was. You know, I was very close to my boyfriend's mother, and I knew all about her romantic escapades. <laughs> but my professor made it clear that I should be writing about my identity, by which she meant writing about being Asian. So in my next story, I did. There were lots of Asian people. And she loved it. And that's how it went. I had been steeped in a culture of reading that excluded the Asian experience. Yet now the Asian experience was exactly what I was supposed to write about. Whenever I did, I got validation for it. Whenever I didn't, I got questions about authenticity and voice. And so one story about Asian immigrants led to another, which eventually led to books, pleading with the publisher not to put dragons and lanterns on the cover, (laughs) and conference panels, that are almost always about ethnicity and diversity. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) The thing is... the right person. The thing is, though, I still know white people's experiences, and I still read their words and books and see their movies and TV shows far more than I know my own family's history. (laughs) Yet whenever I don't write about Asians, people still say, Why? meaning, why aren't you staying in your ethnic corner? My third book, uh, Pioneer Girl, which is about uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder and how she and her daughter, Rose Wilder, co-wrote those books, uh, was a subject that was near and dear to me. The mother and daughter had a tempestuous relationship, and that was great material. But there are no Asian people in the Little House on the Prairie books. (laughs) The only way I could move forward with this novel was by using the one real-life link between Asianness and the Ingalls family, which is that Rose Wilder had traveled to Vietnam as a reporter during the Vietnam War. Even when I'm not in my ethnic corner, I'm in my ethnic corner. Whereas white writers have been writing about Asian people for years and years. Memoirs of a Geisha. (laughs) Sold more than four million copies. I can think of at least three books of fiction about Asians written by white people that have won Pulitzer Prizes. It is often said in creative writing classrooms that writers should feel free to write ethnic voices or other voices so long as they do their research. I hear this a lot. But what exactly is meant by research? Does reading a few books and traveling for a little while and doing some heavy Googling give us permission to write a voice or perspective outside our own? It seems to me that this anxiety about writing outside ourselves has been framed by and for the white writer's experience. After all, a white person writing the voice or perspective of a person of color is not the same as a person of color writing the voice or perspective of a white person. People of color in America 
know the white experience because that is the foundation of our educational system and media. We are surrounded by it. We are immersed in it. White people are rarely obligated to immerse themselves in the experiences of people of color. They may choose to, and that choice itself is an act of privilege, but they do not have to. Writers of color, I would wager, don't have much of a problem writing white characters because they have spent a lifetime doing their research. The problem is getting those works published and read. I think of a brilliant recent essay by Jenny Zhang called They Pretend to Be Us While Pretending We Don't Exist, in which she discusses how white people, quote, want to try on my otherness to advance their value in the literary marketplace, but I don't think they want to grow up as an immigrant in the United States. I don't think they want to experience racism and misogyny on a micro and macro level, be made to feel perpetually foreign no matter how long they've lived here. So... I am not saying that we should not write outside our own perspectives and experiences. Of course, we have to take this risk. That's what we do in, as writers. But I am questioning the reasons and motivations for doing so and how those results are received by publishers and readers. I am questioning how often free passes and accolades are given to white writers who do this while writers of color are asked to explore the confines of their ethnic corners. If we want some measure of equity or anything like it, we have to examine these issues of motivation and publishing and how ideas of craft and aesthetics are also caught up in them before we can even start with this thing called research. Thank you. Luis and I have voted that we are speaking outside the box, and we're not going to the podium. <laughs> we do what we want. We want. <laughs> this side of the table is different. <laughs> so my name is Jody Angel, and in 2013, I published a book of short stories called You Only Get Letters from Jail that was written from the point of view of all teenage boy narrators. And apparently my motivation in doing so was so that I could constantly answer the question, why did you do that? <laughs> and I have given many flippant answers in response to that question. And it's a good question, because I cannot articulate the motivating force, other than to say that when I was younger, I read Wally Lamb's She's Come Undone. Is Wally Lamb here? I think he was at the Marriott Bar last night. He didn't have his name tag on, but I thought he was a poet. He did not just write from the female point of view. He embodied that female character. He did not see the world through her eyes. He felt the world through her heart. And I was amazed by the transformation that he made in writing that narrator. And I internalized that for a long, long time. And, you know, when I was six years old, I lived in a suburb of a very small town. And it's, you know, if there is a such thing as a suburb of a small town. And, uh, but, you know, the houses were new. And the streets were new. They had new names, and it was undeveloped, and there was a lot of dirt, and there were a lot of streets that dead-ended. And uh, all my friends were boys. There were a lot of boys that lived in the neighborhood. And 
I would ride my bike with the boys. And so we'd ride bikes around, and we'd go on these dirt hills, and it was summertime, and I'd wear cutoffs and be barefoot just like them. And they rode their bikes with their shirts off. And I took my shirt off, too, and rode my bike with no shirt on, and I was six years old. And my mother said, you can't ride your bike with no shirt on. And I didn't understand why I couldn't ride my bike with no shirt on when all my friends rode their bikes with no shirts on. There was a wonderful feeling of that air on your skin. And I thought, why do they get to do that and I don't? And so I internalized that feeling too. And what I wanted to do ultimately was not see the world through the boy's eyes, but feel the world through their heart. And so I never forgot that feeling of being six on that bicycle and not understanding why I couldn't have my shirt off too. So I wanted to write a collection where I could take my shirt off. And so that's what I did. Hmm. Take your shirt off, Luis. Okay. <laughs> Buenas tardes, Los Angeles. Tijuana in the house. I'll tell you what, that freaking box feels like a body bag to me. It's stretchy and bendy, man. It's hard to get out of. You know, when I was, I was born in Tijuana, Spanish was my first language, and the first box, I was white! But in Mexico, they thought that was kind of amusing. <laughs> I'd go to the tortilleria, and it would get me free tortillas all the time, you know? They'd be like, ay, mi güerito, ¿quieres una tortilla? I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> I was seven, and I was like, yeah, baby, I'll take a tortilla. <laughs> And then we moved to San Diego. We went to uh, Barrio Logan, Juan Felipe Herrera's barrio. And all of a sudden, that was a different box. Because I came out of Tijuana talking Tijuana. A lot of my brothers still got the Tijuana accent. So I was talking like that, okay? But I was white like an Irish boy. <laughs> and I like to say that I was the one-man wave of social justice because every warring ethnicity saw me coming and said, let's kick his ass. <laughs> And I would stay home, and I would read. But there were no Mexican books really available, Caliman comic books, if those of you know Mexico. And uh, I used to say to people, you know, my, ha my little apartment was divided. My mother was American, never learned Spanish. So she called me Luis. My father was super Mexicano. He called me cabron. <laughs> and, you know, you'd cross from the U.S. through the border into the living room, which was Mexico. And I liked to read, and my father saw me slipping away. He saw me gringifying, you know. So he was trying to find something. I like to read, and he was trying to find me something to read in Spanish. And Tijuana, not well known for bookstores. But he found a book in Spanish, which was The Iliad and the Odyssey translated. <laughs> And my poor dad, I don't know if any of you had Mexican dads, you'll recognize this. He always smoked palmels, you know. So he had his palmel, and he came home one day, and he had the book. He said, mijo, like this, read it in the original Spanish. <laughs> and then we moved to a white working-class suburb, which we were the first mixed family there. And then it had nothing to do with being white, because we were all white. But I found out I was a greaser wetback. I was like, que, que? I'm a what? Greaser wetback. 
I had never heard that stuff before. And uh, all of a sudden, everybody I loved, everybody I worshipped, everybody I revered was crap. Mm -hmm. Tijuana was a filth hole of prostitution. Mexicans smoke horse crap cigarettes. Did you know that? They cook dogs. I was like, what? What? We, we what? It was the most shocking thing that ever happened to me. And, you know, now I realize that I suddenly veered over into mom's column. All of a sudden, Tijuana started fading away, and then I was like, oh, hello, how are you? <laughs> Lovely to see you, dear boy. <laughs> you know, it was a survival thing. And, you know, I mean, you're Angelinos, many of you. I grew up in San Diego in the time when there was nothing Latino available. The only Latino author I ever thought had ever existed was Cervantes. And they told us there was this book called Donkey Hody. And I thought it was about a donkey named Hody. A kid's book. And uh, off I go to college. And college was the miracle when suddenly I get to college and they're talking about this Borges. So I was like, what? Who? Neruda? What? What? Gabriela Mistral? Who the hell? What? Quiroga? You know, Carlos Fuentes? What? Sor Juana Ines? It was this miracle. And at the end of college, I discovered Chicanos. What? <laughs> we actually get to write this? Because I had notebooks full of stuff. I thought nobody would ever see. I didn't think we got to write this stuff. Now, during that transit, I just want to throw in there, during my high school years, the miracle of David Bowie happened. All of a sudden, right? God bless David Bowie. But all of a sudden, my father, who was already worried about me, was like, what is the deal with this guy? You know, he's wearing necklaces, and he's got hair, and his best friend's gay. Pues que? He didn't know what was happening to me. So I feel like this friggin' box never stops. No matter where you go, it's not going to stop. You know, you don't have the right body shape. Oh, you don't have the right facial hair. Oh, got the wrong haircut. Oh, too bad about your bust size. Oh, your butt's too big. No, it's too small. Oh, you can't wear skinny jeans. I think, just shut up. You know, and now we're in the era of the huge, huge wall that's coming. The Mexicans are going to pay for it. Just shut up. <laughs> and the thing I want to say a little bit about cultural appropriation stuff, which is something that's really important to me. You know, I come from a world where lots of people think it's okay to jet into the border, spend a day or two, and then write a book as experts about those funky little brown people doing weird brown shit. And I hate it. And I call it my day at the zoo writing. Hmm. I'm very against it. And uh, some people who are real practitioners of, quote, border writing have no concept really of the culture and the love and the beauty and my grandma uh, that's there. And um, I found to my great shock that in the Urrea family, we are Apaches, Yaquis, Mayos, Chinese, the Wang Urrea, African Americans. We have Filipino relatives gay nephews, transgendered people. My aunt, who was Mexico's national women's bowling champion, came out in 1963, lived her whole life with her partner, and my family to this day are like, isn't it sweet that the girls took care of each other until a man came along? <laughs> no, no, wait, 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 wait. So when it was time to do Hummingbird's Daughter, I was really worried, because I thought, here's a woman's story my great aunt, known as the Saint of Kabora, the, the, known as the Queen of the Yaquis, uh, a medicine woman. 
mother of the Mexican Revolution. And just to show you how hard this issue is sometimes for us, I think, I went to Linda Hogan. You know Linda Hogan? And I sat with her for two hours, and I told her the entire story of this woman's life. I had already been researching her for 10 years. And she said, this is great. I can't wait till you write this. And I said, well, I was going to ask you something. And she said, what? I said, can you write it? (laughs) And she said, why should I write it? And I said, well, it's a woman's story. She said, it's your woman. It's your responsibility. And I said, ah, you know, it's indigenous. And she said, well, what's the problem with an indigenous story? And I said, well, Linda, it's my Western mind, you know. I don't want to be going in there and doing some new age. And she said this with this gesture. And I pass this on to you because I know you're wrestling with these issues too. She said, honey, the Western mind is a fever. It will pass. So I, I have some canned questions, but I'm happy to just get right to your questions right now. Is anybody, is anybody burning? Yeah, go ahead, please. So the question is about research and how to do research authentically in a, in a way that deals with, I, I think, what, what Skip said about um, re- respect and honor, honoring the differences. Um, do you want to take that one, Luis? I can just speak a little bit from my experience on that book I mentioned, Hummingbird's Daughter. It took 20 years to research it. So, you know, I think the responsibility of research goes beyond research. And my blessing was that once... I kind of got Linda's blessing, and I was I was working with Vine Deloria Jr. You know, and Vine kind of gave his blessing that more and more teachers came. And halfway through the book, I moved to the Sonoran Desert to be near the Yaqui people because they had been mishandled by Castaneda and so forth. And uh, lo and behold, small miracles! My cousin that I'd never met was a full medicine woman. And when she started teaching me and kicking me around, she, they kicked me around for 10 years. So I had, to, I had to do a lot of things I never thought I would do, still not knowing how to tell that story. And I thought I was collecting the information for my family. We had grown up hearing about her, um, and that's when it came to life on its own. So I, to me, it was more a question of living it. Now I'm working on a story about the Red Cross, which is engaged in a lot of research material, but we have a woman who uh, was a, a World War II hero and the last of this group who's 98 years old, and she, we sit with her many, many hours. So there's a difference between, I think, grabbing a story and pinning it to a board like a beetle and going and trying to, to look in each other's eyes and cry together and eat together and walk together and try to listen. My, my cousin when I voiced the same complaint that I gave to Linda Hogan, and I said, I just don't think I can get this stuff right about women's medicine. And she said, you goddamn men, if you want to know something about women, why don't you ask? And I thought, oh, really? And then she said, and when we talk, why don't you listen? So that's all I can say about it. Uh, can I just jump in? Yeah, that's great advice, and, I'm just, um, and maybe another bit of like, practical advice. Uh, is identifying when you're working on the novel, um, you know, who is the readers that do terrify you the most as far as, like, the ones that are going to know if, if you're, you're 
failing in authenticity or things like that. I mean, I guess um, an example, my last book had a, um, a Navy SEAL veteran character in it. Believe it or not, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not a Navy SEAL. But I have a cousin who is, and I wanted to, to get it as right as I could. So obviously I did, you know, what research I could in creating the draft. But no novel is going to emerge fully formed in the first draft. Um, and so when I had it reading well and clean, I gave it to him and I thought I'd nailed everything, and of course you find out very quickly that, you know, the SEALs call helicopters uh, helos and not choppers, et cetera, you know, these types of things, but it's, it, those are, you know, great details and things you, you kind of, so, you know, just always be on the lookout for those people, the early, you know, early readers. I mean, don't waste their time by giving it to them in the very early, early stages, but after you've, you've done a lot of work on your own, you've sort of earned the right to, um, <laughs> whatever that means, to uh, earn the right to kind of ask that of them, of their time. Um, I've actually found in all these instances they've, They've kind of enjoyed the experience, like me being interested in, in what they do and in their lives, and again, and, and sort of collaborating in some ways. You know. I would just say that not all research is the same, and um, it's to me, if you're just research, if you're researching someone's job, or you know, it's you have that's important to get all the facts right. It's completely different to research someone's ethnicity, uh, family history. That is a totally different thing. And I'll give you a, a sort of a personal example, which is that a couple of years ago, somebody came to my parents and wanted to interview my parents for research purposes cause, because this person was writing a, a nonfiction book about you know, what happened to Vietnamese refugees. And I asked this person, I was like, why? Why are you writing this book? This was a white person. I said, what is your reason for doing this? And he didn't really have one. He thought it was just an interesting subject. He thought people would want to hear about it. And the more I talked to him, the more it just seemed to me, he just thought it was a sellable subject. And I think marketing and commerce, those are not good reasons. Those are not good sources of motivation. So I was like, you know, to my parents, go ahead and talk to them. But I was, I'm going to give that guy the side eye. <laughs> and I was like, the whole time, I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and my parents talked to him because they'll talk to anybody. Um, but the whole time, I'm, th I'm thinking to myself, that's exactly what I don't want to do. And because I want to examine my motivations for doing something, not because I think it's just a good story. There is a reason we're drawn to things. And if we don't really examine those first and figure out what our personal stake is in it, then we're just going to be writing on the surface. Yes, go ahead. The question is about the reception of Skip's novel, particularly in relation to his use of race. Yeah, I, was, I heard a writer one time say, like somebody used the word brave in connection with writing, and he said, you know, fighter pilots and coal miners are, <laughs> are brave, and we're writing. But no, I, you know, actually, I mean, I don't know what people said, you know, outside of my earshot, but I, I didn't experience any huge blowback. But it's, it's also true, I, you know, I did not win the Pulitzer Prize for this book or anything. I don't know that it was on the cultural radar in the way that maybe would have, would have you know, earned that kind of um, analysis or criticism. So, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I, um, I don't know, and I don't know what drew me to the story in the first place, you know. I guess I just, I, I, it would have been impossible to write about it if I would have been 
overly concerned about the critic staring on my shoulder. I can't write anything that way. And I just, I mean, I just knew, it's an answer everybody has to answer for themselves. Is like, why are you doing this? And are you doing it for the right reasons? And I was comfortable with why I was doing it. I was really fascinated by this character. And it was an opportunity as somebody who write about, writes about the South a lot. I like the idea of, and writes about nature a lot of taking somebody from a culture who's lives live in probably a closer contact with the environment than any culture that's ever existed and dropping them into a landscape that was very dear to me, the sort of river bottoms and swamplands of the American South and just sort of seeing what came from that, you know. It's, I, I think for any character that I write, even ones that are extremely different from me, I know, and it's usually my secret, there's some point of connection that I have with that character that I can really, really relate to, um, and I start with that point of connection and just then try and build from there and explore outward. Um, but, yeah, that's like a long, sort of a weird rambling answer. But nobody's burned me at the stake yet, I guess. Is the, <laughs> There's, we'll do that. At, we're doing that at 2.40 today, That's getting today, started, actually. I think. <laughs> uh, back in that corner. Totally motivated by pay all the time. <laughs> So the question is when it, so I, I was motivated by the cash, <laughs> but when is it a bad idea to, to cross the line? Like what is your boundary on that boundary? That's an excellent question. Who, who wants it? Nobody. Nobody wants it? I don't know. I mean, there's, I, I went to um, Jody's panel yesterday about, essentially about writing about poverty, and I kept wondering it, it, it felt like the line there was drawn, and, and granted it was, the, it was the panel topic, but the, the line there was very much economics. Like I felt like those writers might move uh, around across various borders there, but not that economic line, right? That was a strong border for there. Would you agree with that, a strong boundary? Like you, you don't, you're not writing a book about very wealthy stockbrokers right now, are you? No, no, no. Yeah, no, yeah. That one. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting, and, and, and I'm also, in, you know, in, in tangent with that and maybe further from that, Beth used the words getting a pass a couple times. You know, Skip's book didn't win the Pulitzer Prize, but Adam Johnson's book maybe says that he gets a pass anyway, e even if it gets that kind of scrutiny. So I guess what lines are you willing to cross as writers? Are we willing to cross as writers, and what lines are we not? Yeah, I mean, I think it is ultimately like this, this sort of personal, nobody knows what's in your heart <laughs> but you, you know, and a lot of people are good at faking it, and some people have the best of intentions and are, and are taken to task. Um, I just like to quote other writers. But <laughs> Carlos Fuentes said a novel is a pack of lies hounding the truth, and I think um, if th that emotional truth part is honest that you're trying to get to, um, then you, you can go to the lies. I think was when when you're starting with, the other thing, um, and there is no there there, that maybe that's when you might the alarms should maybe go on, be going off. Mm. You know? And and I, you know I'm not saying I'm perfect. I've certainly started many things, and I've felt you know 80 pages in, 100 pages in. You know what? There's no heat here for me. You know what I mean? And yeah. uh, just put it away. This panel is a little self-serving for me, uh, and Beth and I have talked about this, but 
I, I want to write a book about Japanese American orchardists in Northern California, like right where I live, and it's, a, it's an important part of the history of that area. And I don't want it to be from the point of view of the white orchardist next door. You, you know what I mean? There was a, you know, each of you in some ways talked about permission, like having to give yourself permission to even tell the story that you now feel entitled to tell. And um, for better or worse, I'm, I'm a, a little terrified about feeling like I have the right to, to, to tell the story that I have in my head to tell, you know, and I'm really holding myself back hard um, on that. And I don't know if I just need to give that up and go on to something else or as a straight white male writer, I'm particularly sensitive to that. And maybe I shouldn't be and maybe I damn well should be, you know. There's no question mark at the end of that. That's just a statement. <laughs> Uh, yes, and then against the wall next. Um, I have a two-part question. <laughs> One is um, about this, this issue of permission, and more to the point that Beth raised about kind of not... What is the work that we all can do to broaden the permissions of you know, what we expect to be from, from different people and you know, the, the issues that, that you raised about that? You know? I, I, don't, I don't know about giving anybody permission. I don't know about, as we give ourselves, as writers, we have to, we give ourselves permission um, very slowly. I don't, I doubt it's a conscious process, but everything begins in reading, right? And uh, for us, everything begins in tons of reading. And every time I hear the word diversity, which I use all the time, uh, because I direct an MFA program, and we're always talking about diversity, and everyone always talks about diversity, it's, it's an add-on word, it's a word that means, you know, we're trying to solve a, some kind of problem without solving the problem if we just use the word diversity. It, it means that there's a, a norm, which is whiteness, and if we use the word diversity, then the norm seems a little bit less pervasive. Um, but the norm is still there, and so I think what I, the idea would be that we don't have to have this word, diversity. And part of the solution, I guess, to that and to what, toward what you're saying is, is reading with that in mind. I feel like um, a lot of times I, I meet people who have read books uh, by diverse writers solely because they were assigned. And um, this is a, a subject that I've talked about with a lot of writers, about how they assign this, these books in their classes, and that's the only time people read you know, books by diverse authors is because they have to. And when we go into a store, what are, we, what are we choosing to buy? What books are we reading for fun? Not because it's supposed to be good for us, not because it's supposed to be useful for us, uh, but because we want to. How do we get to that place where uh, we want to read everyone's experiences, not because it's educational or because we feel guilt, um, but because that is what we want to do? Mm -hmm. And um, I guess it does begin with making the effort to... Um, to look at our bookshelves and to, to look at our reading lists and, and to educate ourselves in that way and not put the burden of education on people of color. Uh, let me get you over there on the wall there. writers, 
how, where do we draw the line between amping the voice of someone's experience and taking their voice away and speaking, and, you know, being the white explainer, the man explainer? The mansplainer. Who's manspreading right now in this room? <laughs> Who's doing it? How do we? Uh, how do we? Or what's the difference between between amping a voice and uh, and taking the voice and speaking for and mansplaining uh, that voice? Luis. Um, yeah, I think that's a that's a toxic condition that we have going on, and it takes a lot of chutzpah to sort of go out and grab somebody's experience and say, yeah, that's interesting, that's cool. You know, if you watch, for example, a lot of film, you know, there's all this stuff happening that people, you know, there's always, there's often a minority, super noble saint figure who with very dewy and moist eyes looks upon the white hero and then elevates the guy up to a little bit of a godhood and I think that's as toxic as really foul propaganda is. You know, it, the question, I think, is allowing a full range of humanity, good and bad. And um, I, I, I always tell my writing students, you know, you're not after a career here. If you're going to come work with me, you're, you know, you're trying to learn a, a pathway. <laughs> you know, you're trying to earn some kind of a, of a, of a belt, Get your black belt. Forget being a millionaire. And so in that process for me, I think, I mean, this is a central question I think about a lot. I think it's incumbent on us to look at each person we are writing about in as full a measure as we can with failings, with no false nobilities, but also no false, unless you're writing about certain political characters running for president, no false... (laughs) you know, uh, attacks on, on being subhuman. And that is, <laughs> that, is, that is a really important balance. And I've always felt that for me, one of my kind of unspoken rules is, you know, if you're a third-person narrator, you're sort of a movie director. If you're a first-person narrator, you're a method actor. And I know what roles I would just be cartoonish if I were trying to foist them upon people. I don't want to be tootsie. I love to write about someone, but to try to portray that voice would feel false to me. And, you know, so to me, it's, it's that issue of, of when, when the bell is struck, does it ring for you? Does it sustain? And that's something no one can choose for you but you. And I would just say, Alexander Hamilton, look what my boy Lynn Miranda's doing out in New York. You know, it's brilliant. And this may be the time for writers who have been marginalized to step up and boldly say, hey, you know what, here we go. You know, and maybe that dial is turned a little bit and some other writers will have to back off a little bit. I don't know. But that's what I think's going on. Hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, yes. Um, you're writing outside your box. How many do you feel the vulnerability to kind of address how that other character is relates to the norm? Like Well, I will say, um, if, if I've got a female character in a novel who's despicable, I, I hate women. 
You, you understand what I'm saying? Like, if as as a male white male writer, like if I have a woman in a book, I'm writing about women. I'm not writing about this woman character that I made up, right? So so, and this is particularly true of those grotesque Amazon reviews that you get. Yeah. You know, Christian Kiefer hates women. I said no, but I do hate that woman in that book that I wrote. That one woman, my ex-wife, actually, <laughs> right? <laughs> Is this being recorded? It is being recorded. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Wait, so I, I love this question right because there. it's sort of the, you know, can't a person of color just be a person of color? Does that person always have to be reacting against the environment? Mm-hmm. And I agree. I, I think that's great. And to me, I have this little, this kind of private theory about this, which I'm now I'm going to make public, uh, which is the hot Asian male uh, theory, <laughs> which is my theory is this. I was watching Magic Mike. <laughs> and the sequel. <laughs> and I thought... It's the best thing I've heard at AWP so far. <laughs> this is totally controversial, what I'm about to say, but I think the sequel is better Whoa. Oh. the original. Oh. And we could talk about that later, but uh, um, oh. my thinking was this. Black. If they had just put a hot Asian stripper in there, that would have done so much for our culture. And, and maybe he would, and not doing some like kung fu routine, okay? He would be the, just the fireman or, you know, whatever. Just the, the fireman or the hot pilot, those kinds of things. If they were just had a hot Asian dude in there and he was stripping, not as good as Channing Tatum, but pretty close, and they never talked about it, he was just this Asian guy, it would be normalizing. And then we yeah. would see him be like, oh, yeah, hot Asian dude. And then we start seeing more hot Asian dudes and we'd all be happier. <laughs> Eric. I have a question then in this kind of box idea. Is the fact that there are awards specifically for women writers or LGBT writers or Asian American writers or whatever, like specific types of writers, is that a good thing to help you get out of the box? Or does that just make your box tighter? You know, I have to say, take any award you can get, brother. (laughs) Because there are also awards for writing about people, which is weird. You know, I have a book that got the rainbow citation from the Library Association for best book for young gay and lesbian readers. And I was so happy because the character in the book, I did not want to do a cartoon. And what has been so touching to me is I go around the country talking at schools, and I swear, every school I go to, there'll be a young person who'll come and sit beside me very quietly because, you know, it's places like McAllen, Texas, where they are not only Chicano kids, but Chicano gay or lesbian kids who are feeling super under, uh, and, and they'll come and they'll start talking to me about the book and what the character meant, and it makes you cry. So, you know, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that the... Uh, it's called Into the Beautiful North. Just sold it to a TV network, too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked. But, again, this is an issue because, you know, if it goes on TV, is everybody going to be cartoon? I hope there's not a bunch of crazy little crazy Mexicans and then really cool little gay boy. You know, I don't want that. So I'm trying to keep it under control and say this is mm. human beings first. But I don't know. What about the subset of awards, do you guys think? I like awards. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
Any, I think anything that promotes uh, visibility yeah. of people's work is, is a good, good thing. Maybe one, one more. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> no more questions. No more questions. Yeah, no more questions. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're giving them the option, yeah. which is lovely. I am. It's one exercise, but it also seems to be a really huge breakthrough. Mm -hmm. I think you're opening, not forcing people into You're opening doors. You know, a lot of the time, our task, certainly with young people, is convincing them that they have a story. And if they have a story, it's not shameful. It's worth sharing. Why do I always start my talks with Tijuana in the house? He went the yes. It's because they told me not to. Yeah. Don't ever tell people you're from Tijuana. It's, it's shameful. Well, it gives me fake street cred now. People are like, oh, he's a badass from Tijuana. <laughs> but the other thing about that is I and all of us are often at big events with a whole bunch of wonderful people. Many times they're dinners. And, and my gente from my barrio are serving at the tables. Oh, yeah. And I start, buenas tardes, Tijuana. And they're like, ¿y este gringo qué? And they look at me. <laughs> but I just want them to know, we're up here. Yeah. And, you know, getting young people to trust that their story is worth telling makes that story worth having lived and living. Mm -hmm. And you've got to keep opening that door. If there's any other uh, questions, we'll take them after. I just want to alert you to one more thing. 2.45 today, Luann Smith. Where's Luann? Luann is running a pedagogy panel on the same subject. I'm sorry, 4.30. 4.30. Great. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks for the panelists. Hey, I just want to say one thing before everyone leaves. Women writers out there, your boxes are double-nailed. Remember that. So you've got to bust out extra hard and speak your truth. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.